0: This presentation was from York's Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Very happy to have with us here on stage today, Sarah Please, Please join me in welcoming her um, to, to give our presentation. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, can everyone hear me? Yep, oh good, fantastic. I can't tell from up here. Um, Thank you all very much for for coming today. Uh, My name is Sarah uh, and I guess um, uh, the thing that I live and breathe uh, is uh, inclusive design and um, making experience uh, more accessible for a whole diverse range of people. This talk was inspired by a tweet that actually was from Billy Gregory um, probably over a year ago now. And he tweeted that, when UX doesn't consider all users, shouldn't it be done as some user experience or sucks? Now, that got, you know, quite a lot of uh, love on Twitter. Um, 342 likes at the time and 349 uh, retweets. Uh, and you'll definitely see it was converted into a poster that some people are using. And, uh, you know, it's uh, something that you see in uh, different people's presentations. But I guess from my point of view a lot of what I and the rest of my team do is actually trying to make things more accessible and to bring that inclusivity into the user experience design process. So it made me think what is it that we're, why is it that we're actually not doing this um, and what are the barriers? In my view I very rarely come across a person who actually doesn't want to create an experience that's inclusive. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's through just lack of understanding um, of diversity of users. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, business constraints, you know, budget, time, that kind of thing. So what I wanted to do today was look at the tools that you already have. You already have all the tools in your uh, user experience toolbox. How do we use those just to be a little bit more inclusive and a little bit more diverse? I think the first thing we need to challenge is that um, there is no such thing as average. So in an article from the ABC, um, they looked at the fact that ordinary Australia is probably not where you think it is. And they actually looked at, um, according to one set of measures, this, what would, this is what would be considered as an ordinary Australian. You only speak English at home. You were born in Australia. Your parents were born in Australia. You're Christian, your family has English ancestry. You're in a registered marriage. You live with your spouse and two children. Your home is freestanding, three-bedroom house which you own uh, with a mortgage. You have two cars. Your family income is $2,000 to $2,999 a week. And using one mode of statistics, that is what was considered as average. Does anyone fit into the average category that I just listed? One person. We've got one. (laughs) So the conclusion of this article was that as Australians become more diverse, the proportion um, sharing the most common characteristics across key measures is failing. In short, the most common type of Australian, the ordinary Australian, is becoming less common. And this is exactly the same in uh, inclusive design. So very often, we do look at, I guess, that middle of the bell curve. But let me just throw a few statistics out there. An estimated 2 million Australians have dyslexia. 3 million Australians live with depression or anxiety. 11 million Australians will experience a mental health condition during their lifetime. Over 4 million people in Australia have some form of disability. 44% of Australian adults don't have the literacy skills needed to cope with the demands of everyday life. And 1.8 million of Australians aged 65 and over have a disability compared to one in eight aged under 65. So it becomes clear that, you know, there is no such thing as normal and there is no such thing as average. And when you layer all these things together, that bell curve, we start to see that actually as we design for the ends, that those people that we're designing for actually move much more towards the middle and average. A a quote from the Picello group um, who have recently put out some inclusive design principles was, behind every great cider application lies thought, empathy and inclusion. This doesn't happen by accident, it happens by design. How we get there is unique, original and as diverse as the people who use our products. And on that note, let's just look through and I actually hope today you don't learn anything and when I say that you're actually using all the tools and all the skills that you already have and just applying it to a slightly different audience. So first one, bit of a no-brainer, including diverse users in your research. We've had some experiences, um, sort of including um, diverse users in research, and it's surprising some of the things that that you come across. The first thing, the first example I wanted to give you is actually something that's really small but really powerful. We interviewed a person with hearing impairment, um, and the research was re- around in-flight entertainment systems. And one of the things that he said, one of the um, the issues that he encountered was that he could not hear what the meal options were on a long-haul flight. Now I remember probably about 10 years ago every long-haul flight I went on had a printed note that sort of had all your meals nicely listed down so you knew exactly what they were. I'm fairly certain the last 10 years that's completely gone by the wayside. It's not in print and it's also not available through any sort of technological means. So the background noise on the plane combined with his hearing impairment meant that he really didn't know what meal he got, he just had to take potluck in what he did. So something as simple as being able to include the meal options on the in-flight entertainment system would be a huge benefit to him. The second interesting example I came across was actually not in any sort of defined user research, it was just actually having a chat to someone with Asperger's. And for this particular person, um, social interaction was a, a little bit difficult and he also liked sort of consistency in the things that he did. And so for him, the likes of the OzPost mailboxes are fantastic for him because he gets an SMS when there's something in the post box and then he can choose a time that he he goes to actually pick it up. More often than not, that's a time when there's not a lot of people around. And he said, I would love to do that also with my online shopping. So his online shopping gave him that ability to be able to shop um, without the, the crowds around him. But when it came to delivery, he said, I'd love to be able to say, don't knock on the door. Don't expect me to answer. I just want you to leave it on my doorstep, but I want you to leave it, say, to the left of my door. I want that every single time because that consistency helps. And like AusPost, send me an SMS when it's there, and I'll come out and collect it at a time that's appropriate. So... For him, you know, that would be just one extra f- piece of functionality um, and process that would a- really help him. And these are the types of things when you, that, that you discover when you do include diverse users in your research. Things that you might not have considered um, if you don't actually speak to these people um, and understand uh, what it is that's important to them. So Carl Erickson said, by, cl- clo- uh, by closely observing the extremes of the community, you learn more quickly what's relevant to everyone and hence to the applications you're building. Budget is always a consideration with every single project. Uh, and I think one of the key things to take away is that it's not necessarily that you have to add lots and lots of extra budget, but in talking to more diverse users, you're often finding out what they want, what the and quote unquote average user wants anyway. Second thing, personas. Um, Personas are are used, you know, uh, a lot in different different projects. So consider including diverse needs and preferences in your personas. But I'm going to put a little bit of a caveat on this one. I was actually talking with my colleague Andrew about this and we said, well, look, if you include a person with, um, you know, a a particular need uh, in your personas, uh, that's great. So maybe transport application, having someone that uh, uses wheelchair or uh, has a, a child in a pram, you know, using that to make sure that there's that focus on providing information about accessible platforms and trains or, or public transport. But what I'm going to call the token sort of disability card, having someone in there with a, a disability or a different needs and preference for the sake of it, you have to be aware that you don't create some unconscious bias by including that single disability persona. And from that have people assume that that one persona with say a disability or it could be any an, another um, sort of uh, diverse need or preference applies to all people with disabilities. Particularly because personas are not necessarily just used by the design team, they're often organisational wide, they're stuck up on walls. So, Just be aware when including um, users like that that you're not creating some form of unconscious bias. Another fairly straightforward one, using inclusive design principles um, in your designs. So inclusive design principles uh, can be quite broad. So it can be things like um, making sure that you have consistency in your site, that the way that information is presented to people can be adapted to the way that they're actually interacting with it. It can also include specifics, you know, the one that everyone knows, color contrast, you know, you must meet particular requirements for color contrast. So by using these we create a a more inclusive um, design. I would say that if you have a, a project where this is the only thing you can do, at least this is a start. It does require knowing your users um, and uh, I guess knowing some of the different ways that people access um, information online. Uh, But even being able to to design inclusively is one step in the right direction. But leading on from this in your wireframing and visual design is annotating your designs with relevant information such as different interaction models. This particular um, recommendation comes a lot of the time. We're reviewing existing sites um, to see whether they're accessible, and some of the basics uh, are often you know are got right, the likes of you know color contrast or um, having meaningful headings or that kind of thing. What is often lost is when you've got more dynamic content, um, such as in this case we've got a login button that then is going to trigger trigger a, a modal dialog with login information, that things like where does focus go for a keyboard only user is often completely overlooked. And for me, this falls directly into the realms of UX and interaction design. These are things that we actually should be um, doing at the start of a project. Um, And I've seen the end state, which is when it's not done, you know, these are the things that slip through. But I've seen the start state as well, when if you document these things up front, then it just passes through to the developers. Uh, They're just being able to implement it. Ultimately, a lot of this is also cutting down on time. We want to design for inclusion, we want to um, discover discover any issues as early as possible so that we don't have to retrofit um, accessibility. So an example like this, we've got a simple login um, link uh, and I've just put some pro-style requirements down. Login has a type of link um, with an accessible label of login. So that's going to be important for our um, people who use screen readers, which actually read content out on the screen. They need to know that this is a link. We can visually see that it's a link, so it's interactive. They need to hear that same information. And, of course, they need to know that what this uh, particular link does. When a user tabs to the field, it shows the relevant focus outline. So if I'm a sighted keyboard only user and I tab to the login link, I need to know where I am on the page. A user can press enter to activate the link and then focus moves to the login dialogue. On the login dialogue, we've then got some information that says we need to say that this is a a dialogue and we need to give it a name. But I've also got there the the blue square numbers sort of show the order of content um, and that's for. content that's read out to screen readers. So focus will land on the modal dialog, it will tell say a screen reader user, hey this is a modal, this is for login and then they'll be able to navigate through content in a sequential order. First off the close button, if they've accidentally got in here, wrong place, they can easily close it and then progressively through the login, email, password uh, and the usual. The red circles are actually your keyboard focus, usually, um, and keyboard accessibility. So for someone who's a sighted keyboard user, tabbing through, this is the order that that they would go through. Another technique you've already got in your toolbox is design or cognitive walkthroughs. And we use this quite a lot um, in the work we do, which is using um, what I've called enhanced personas. So to come back to our personas, Often the persona, the needs and preferences of the persona, what they want to do within your application, are the same irrespective of how someone wants to do it. So what we can actually do is take those personas and layer on different um, needs or preferences or the way someone interacts with your um, with your product. So for this one, we've got a few just stick, sticky notes. Um, uh, we've enhanced this accessibility champion so that he uses a keyboard most mornings, but in the afternoon he gets a bit more tired, and so he uses Dragon Naturally Speaking voice recognition software to navigate around um, uh, the, his computer and products. Uh, he's very experienced with. Technology user. That's not always the case, um, and it's actually something we find uh, when we get to usability testing. Is sometimes usability testing is done with uh, advanced uh, assistive technology users, and um, that doesn't that doesn't always give you a, a good view of um, you know the experience that uh, different users with different technological savvy are experiencing. So we can use something like this to actually go through wireframes, visual designs or even existing products to understand how that user is going to or how easy or efficient or effective it is going to be for the user to complete the task. So here I've got a wireframe, um, fairly simple one, just a sort of products page. Um, But on the right hand side we've got a login, checkout and uh, contact buttons. And in the order of of flow we sort of go through main navigation, filters on the left, products in the middle and then these particular icons or, or elements of login, checkout and contact on the right. The task of logging in or getting to the checkout button, for someone who is a sighted keyboard user they're going to have to tab 16 times in order to get to the login button, 17 to get to the checkout. So by having those key tasks in mind and then having these particular users in mind and the different preferences and layering those on top of personas, you can use the design or cognitive walkthrough process to actually see how, what the experience might be for the user even before you've got to any sort of usability testing. And of course uh, including diverse users in your, your usability test. Um, this is one of the most important things in, in the whole uh, inclusive design process and it's probably the one where I'm slowly seeing Australia move from and because I do work in sort of a, an accessibility space, moving from a compliance view of accessibility which is that must be compliant with the standards, i.e. WCAG 2 AA. Um, to actually looking at the experience of the user. And the next step past the sort of compliance check is definitely usability testing. It actually is even more important sometimes um, to do usability testing uh, with uh, users with particular access requirements because that experience is going, that, that usability, that ease of use is actually going to be even more important to them. Uh, recovering from issues, you know, that uh, can take longer, Um, not being able to find things, complex uh, interfaces can actually present more of an issue than, um, say, someone that that might just be your, quote-unquote, average user. So it's definitely an important part of the the process. So to come back full circle... um, Billy Gregory said, when user experience doesn't consider all users, it should be called some user experience or sucks. What we want to do, though, is, for me, some user experience, we just want to make it become user experience. The terminology inclusive experience just becomes user experience design. And accessibility just becomes usability. In my view, the only, the only reason we need terms like inclusive design and accessibility is that that diversity of users is often not included in the process. So we have the tools. Maybe we need to, to have a little bit more you know, knowledge about our different users, but we can build that up over time. Um, and so doing this is just the one step uh, in the right direction because everyone does have a right to efficient and enjoyable experiences. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.